This is the Ether Review, a talk show passing the components of the Ethereum global computing platform and its ecosystem. Building on a basic knowledge of the blockchain, we seek to understand the mechanics behind this new generation computing network and the services it powers. Hello and welcome to the Ether Review. With me today is Emin Gun Saira, Associate Professor at Cornell and Co-Director at the Initiative for Cryptocurrencies and Smart Contracts. Thanks for joining me, Emin. Uh, thank, thank you for having me on. What's your background and how did you get involved in the space? Uh, let's see. I uh, originally started out life as an operating systems hacker. I built some research operating systems a long time ago. I uh, then started to think about distributed systems, especially peer-to-peer self-organizing distributed systems. And um, uh, this was back in the early 2000s. And uh, back then, it was really, really difficult to get people to behave nicely on, uh, say, file sharing networks. And you needed to, so I felt that what we needed was some kind of a scheme for keeping track of how good people have been. So I built a system called Karma, and uh, Karma kept track of how good you've been using something uh, uh, that uh, was essentially a cryptocurrency of the time. And uh, it was uh, protected by proof of work. And uh, it's very well cited among academics, but I didn't really do a push to sort of get it used as a, as a you know, unit of account or, um, you know, or some uh, exchange mechanism among people. So uh, it didn't have the success that Bitcoin later came in and had. And I certainly didn't build the sort of cult of personality that Satoshi did. So anyhow, um, so this was 2002. I was building peer-to-peer systems. I built many peer-to-peer systems. So on and off, I built an operating system to explore new operating system concepts. And uh, in between, I build uh, network systems of different kinds. My special take on life is that um, the systems I build, I try to build them in some principled fashion. I want my systems to have some good reason for why they should work. I want to be able to sleep well at night. I don't like solutions where, you know, you just kind of go from the gut. And uh, so anyway, so that's my approach to life. That's how I found myself in this space, having worked on one cryptocurrency. Then I took another interest uh, in this space again when Bitcoin became a huge success. Uh, Itai Eyal and I looked into the Bitcoin uh, mining protocol very early on. We discovered the biggest known problem with the Bitcoin mining protocol known as selfish mining. We then came up with a fix for selfish mining to the extent that it can be fixed. In fact, that fix has been incorporated into Ethereum already. Uh, We worked with Vitalik before Ethereum was an Ethereum, uh, when it was sort of in the formative stages. And um, I don't know, then we've done a bunch of other work in securing Bitcoin and coming up with vaults for Bitcoin and Uh, two-phase proof of uh, work to make sure that uh, Bitcoin mining pools can't get too big. Um, And on and on and on. Most recently, I built uh, Falcon, the Bitcoin relay network, to help with decentralization and to help connect miners to each other. Uh, So anyway, so this is the kind of stuff I do. And of course, I got involved with the DAO. You did, yeah. I remember when that first paper came out when you called for the moratorium on DAO proposals. Right. So those were heady times. Um, so Vlad Zamfir was in town. Uh, we were working on Casper, um, scaling, scaling proof-of-stake protocol, building robust proof-of-stake protocols that scale. 
And uh, we were just hanging out, and Vlad said, you know, the Dow thing is really taking off. <laughs> you know, that inimit inimitable Vlad style. And we're like, yeah, it's really taking <laughs> It had like $150 million in it. <laughs> this thing was already halfway to the moon. And uh, he, so he was like, yeah, I don't even know if it's correct. And I was like, yeah, we don't, do we? And uh, Dino Mark was absolutely fantastic. So uh, Dino was, uh, was a, did a, an enormously awesome job of... Uh, so writing out a bunch of different concerns, and then uh, I worked with Vlad and uh, and Dino, and uh, we sort of massaged it into this moratorium call. And uh, we were in the midst of trying to implement the moratorium when the hacker struck. <laughs> so and then he started doing all sorts of things. He 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 actually took um, advantage of the reentrancy bug, which is a lower level thing, and then he took advantage of the kinds of things that we identified, which are game theoretic. Uh, to sort of stalk people's split proposals and so forth. So it was, uh, it, was, it was heady, heady days. Like the last couple of weeks have been pretty stressful, even though I don't even have much at stake. <laughs> I just got carried into it. It's really cool. Like when we were, when I was young, you know, when I was an undergrad, uh, we'd play Core Wars. I'm not sure how many of your listeners have ever played Core Wars. This is when you write code um, and then I write code and you write code and we run it on the same machine and the, the code attacks each other. That's what's, what was being played with the DAO hacker on the Ethereum, you know, virtual machine. It was fantastic. Like, this is like, this is what I used to do. <laughs> this is what got me excited. So, yeah. And so we were doing it again, and it was, it was awesome. It was actually unbelievable to watch. It was so cool. It sounds, it's actually ghastly to say it like that. It must have been awful for a lot of people. And, uh, yeah. and it's easy to be cavalier as someone who's, uh, who's sidelined by, you know, sheer ignorance of what's really going on. But it was incredible to, to watch. I wonder what you probably have a pretty good take on what kind of person this attacker might have been. I don't really know. Um, I suspect it's somebody we, uh, we kind of know. Like it, there are only so many people who are eligible for the, for the, the throne of the DAO hacker. Uh, you know, I have my suspicions about what kind of a person this is. It's, they, they did some interesting things. They did not drain the entire thing. They stopped. And I think here's a fun game that your listeners can perhaps play. So suppose you're in possession of a, of a, of a, of a hack that can drain about $220 million. How much would you drain? Because if you drain just 100000 you might be able to get away with that, right? Nobody's going to hard fork for 100 k If you drained $220 million, they'll probably hard fork. <laughs> so where do you put the slider at? <laughs> so uh, that's an interesting question. Anyway, so we know a little bit about the hacker's personality by, by uh, him or her having put the slider at uh, 53 million. So, um, but it's, it's otherwise very hard to guess. We also have a couple of pointers to people who played around uh, with reentrancy bugs in the days before, uh, well, DAO reentrancy bugs in the days before um, uh, the hack ha took place. So there are a couple of pointers in the direction of the DAO hacker. But, you know, I'm, I'm not super excited about finding out who this person is. I think we undid it. It's fine. So, um, And, hey, it looks like he got away with it, so more power to him, I suppose. <laughs> I think he taught us a lesson. I think he taught everybody an incredibly valuable lesson. And that, yeah, I can go into this if you want. The, the lesson is we need to be much more careful when writing smart contracts and also when evaluating smart contracts. So as a community, I think too much money went into this uh, this DAO without enough due diligence. And had that due diligence been done, I think we would not be where we are today. 
Now, I, uh, just to, just to labour this uh, question a bit, how was it that they were able to find the, uh, the re-entrancy bug before anyone else identified it? So, um, let's see. Peter Vesenis um, had a blog post that pointed out the re-entrancy bug. And before then, it was well known anyway, because least authority had done a security analysis of Ethereum smart contracts and had identified this as a general categorical problem. So both of these, like, both of these pointers were there. And there's one additional thing we know about the DAO hacker now, which I didn't initially, which is he did not drain the DAO into his own split. He wasn't the one who started that split. So he wasn't sort of ready taking a position to sort of drain it into his own vehicle. Um, he's used somebody else's. So he must have felt that he was under the gun, that other people would think of this, and that he didn't really necessarily maybe even want to profit off of it directly. So, so yeah, so there is, uh, there is that. And, um, and I know, I mean, the, the thing is, like now we understand the reentrancy bug very, very well, and hopefully we will not be making the same mistakes again. What tangled webs? So, say this again? <laughs> I said, what tangled webs? I know, I know. It's very, very, uh, it's quite exciting, this whole thing. And not just the reentrancy bug. I mean, he ended up stalking other people into their splits. So um, it, it just felt like there was a moment when, so I remember waking up. I heard that the DAO was being drained. Um, I was involved, like they added me to a bunch of chat channels. Um, Vitalik is saying, hey, I'm spamming the, 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 uh, the, the blockchain with transactions to slow down the attacker. So people are throwing spam transactions in to, to try to slow this person down. That person, the DAO hacker, is like stalking people. It just felt like, oh my God, everything's suspect. There is nothing safe. You know, hide your... Hide your kids, hide your pets, hide everything you've got. <laughs> this guy's coming after us. So it was a, there was a, there were some low moments there when I felt like, oh God, this is uh, we're dealing with a pretty pretty uh, you know clever attacker here. Now you say that the uh, the reentrancy bug was uh, was, I mean maybe not well understood but well known prior to this attack. How much liability falls on the team that created the DAO in the first place for not, uh, for not identifying that? It's so hard to point fingers now, and I don't really want to do it. You know, it's, uh, there were... So here is the real issue. Forget the reentrancy bug. There's the reentrancy bug, and it's a bug. That wasn't intentional. And I'm willing to say, you know what? It's the kind of mistake that anybody could... Not anybody, but it's the kind of mistake that one could make. And if you're not expecting the, uh, the DAO to be uh, the runaway success that it was, then I could imagine, you know, saying, okay, well, this is good enough, right? Like, if, you're, if you think you're going to raise $200,000, then you put some effort into it, yeah, you're fine. Um, it ended up being a big success, and the reentrancy bug was in it. But I'm much more concerned about the other bugs that were also in the DAO. Like this thing was riddled with bugs all the way up the stack. Um, the real question we should be asking ourselves is, was the DAO equipped to do what it, it, it set out to do? So which is, was it equipped to poll the audience and find out what they really thought about a proposal? Uh, and the short answer is it wasn't. The short answer is it had a tremendous bias towards funding proposals. So this was dumb money ready to just sort of rubber stamp any proposal that came in front of it 
And um, as soon as I sort of figured out how this thing was was biased, I felt like, okay, I got to get a proposal in front of this thing because <laughs> it's going to be pretty easy to drain it using completely legitimate legal things. So, um, so there was the positive bias. There, was, there were all sorts of problems with it that, that, that forced people to, to behave in a strategic manner. And um, strategic in this case is a bad word. You want people to be honest and simple. You don't want them to be strategic. You want them to be truthful. And uh, the mechanisms used were not at all conducive to being truthful. Being truthful hurt you. So, so I think those are the reasons for why I personally am a little disappointed by the amount of effort put into this whole thing by the Slocket team. There's a long, long history of academic research going into what we call decision theory. There, people actually thought about how you should be polling the audience, what, what you should be asking them, and uh, how you should be conducting these polls to elicit that, what they truly think. Uh, the Slocket team just kind of just, you know, did what a bunch of computer scientists would do, bereft of any knowledge of what came before them. So had they done their research a little better, I think the whole whole episode would have played itself out uh, a little differently. The reentrancy bug would still be there, but, uh, but at least the DAO concept would not be uh, up for questioning at the moment. Well, that's, that's the DAO. And look, I, I know you're, uh, you're probably sick of talking about it. The world has heard so much about the DAO, <laughs> you know. But the fork itself, um, the failed soft fork, which... Personally, and this is, this is editorial, but um, I was relieved to see that the soft fork didn't go through because to me, that felt like, I mean, that's censorship, right? Pure and simple. And the fact that we know that doesn't work is kind of relieving. Isn't it the best thing? Come on, we can say more than that. It's the best thing. <laughs> I was so thrilled. So, you know, here's what happened with the whole soft fork story. So, um, in the security channel, people started talking about the soft fork. And, um, and then there were questions about, like, well, will it be abused? Will, uh, you know, like, will it, is it okay? Like, what's going to happen with it? And um, I thought a little bit about, um, you know, Gavin Wood was there, and there were a couple of people who were like, no, the soft fork will go just fine. And initially, I thought it would go just fine as well. And Chaden Hess and uh, River Kiefer, so Jaden is a uh, is a uh, high school student. He's currently an intern at Consensus, but he's an incoming Cornell freshman. He's very young and very, very, very brilliant. And so is River. River is a first year first year freshman, um, first year student, first year undergrad at Columbia University, and he's also an intern at Consensus. The two of them contacted me saying. You know, we think the soft fork is not is not a good idea. It opens us up to this attack vector that nobody seems to be thinking about. And as soon as I heard it from Jaden, I was like, "Of course, he's so right." And the, the two of them are absolutely brilliant, and they get all the kudos they res- they deserve, all the kudos and recognition for uh, calling off the soft fork. I was afraid that the soft fork would actually cut into the motivation for the hard fork, which is what we really actually needed. And, um, and in the fact that Ethereum cannot effectively do a soft fork that, does, that censors a class of, uh, of, um, of, uh, of transactions is a wonderful outcome. It can't have been any better. So it's so good to hear that, 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 that if I put up a, a smart contract that you guys won't collude and try to keep things out of it. That is so relieving. That is absolutely amazing. 
that was fantastic anyway to escape that whole soft fox scenario because it was a bit of a, yep. you know, it was like it's time for a real fix. Yep. No half measures. Yeah, it would have just just dragged it all out and we would have all been quite unhappy and, uh, and the discussions would have gone on forever and then you can get, easily get into bike shedding situations about how exactly to do the hard fork right and so forth. And, um, and I think what we ended up doing was, uh, was pretty amazing and um, I think it serves as an example of good governance for other cryptocurrencies. I think the Bitcoin guys need to look over their shoulder and say, well, you know, these guys, the Ethereum folks kind of know how to, how to conduct themselves, um, if nothing else. Now, they're going to scream and shout and say, well, look, you compromise your principles, this and that. And there's a lot to be said in, in response to that. I don't need to say any of those things. Those, those sort of uh, debates have been had and we're kind of tired of them. But I think the main takeaway for me is really not about the hard work versus soft fork. It's really about a functioning community versus uh, sort of communities in disarray. And uh, for sure, Ethereum could have gone into disarray, but didn't and pulled through. Everybody sort of was like, look, this is what we need to do. It's a reentrancy bug. We're going to fix it. It's a lot of effort. This is not going to be something that repeats itself over, you know, if I lose 10 tokens of like, you know, whatever, we're not going to go hard fork for my 10 tokens. This is not, uh, I don't know. It's just been a, it's been a great experience. I think I was elated to see this. Um, Ethereum came out of this much, much, much stronger than it went in. And uh, had the DAO, DAO attacks been going on on the blockchain, where if we were to sort of continue going, you know, white hats versus dark DAO versus this and that, that would have really eroded everyone's confidence. And now it's clean, it's done. On to the next challenge, and uh, we'll see what those are. Before we actually go on to the next challenge, though, I'd like to ask you what you think about the pro-fork and anti-fork uh, attitudes and what underlies them and, and what the merits on, on either side are. What's the cultural divide there? Okay, that's a great question. So I've always said from the get-go that I have immense respect for both sides. So there is really a, a real um, foundation to both, uh, both lines of reasoning. So the anti-fork line of reasoning says, code is law. You sold us this bill of goods where you said that things that happen on the blockchain are immutable. They can never change. They should never change. There is a slippery slope. Uh, once you change one contract, what's there to keep you from changing any other contract? What, what about tomorrow? What about my little blackjack game that I just played and won money at? Are you going to take that back too? Where do you stop on a slippery slope? Right? That's a question. Um, the other thing that they say um, is, uh, and there is merit to all of these, this is, I think, another um, reasonable argument, which is, we're not just making decisions for the token holders of today. There is a bunch of money at stake right now, and it's, you know, whatever it is, 53 million in the dark DAO and 150 in the white hat thing, etc. But there is billions to be had down the line. So by, by doing something now, you might actually cut into what's going to happen down the line. You might be unable to attract uh, the kinds of people who would come in because they'd be attracted to the immutability of this blockchain. So that's the, uh, the anti-fork uh, argument. The pro-fork argument goes, as, as I think, um, I, I, I'm, I'm very good at summarizing the anti-fork argument because I try to be fair to the other side. My allegiance from day one uh, was on the, 
hard fork side. And I was pretty clear. I think the people who are affiliated with the Ethereum Foundation, they can't take as strong a stance, right? So Vitalik, if he comes up really strongly in favor of one side or the other, people start pushing back on him and so forth. Uh, but I'm, as an independent person, and I had no DAO tokens to lose, I can just vocally point out you know, things from my independent perspective. So from my perspective, one, I don't believe at all in the precedent argument. We are not the Supreme Court. We are not, uh, you know, we're, we are not beholden to our past decisions. I can be nice to you today and nice to everybody else for a long time and stop being nice to people at any time of my own choosing. So the slippery slope, we, societies exist on many slippery slopes. We, we, we know how to sort of navigate them. And, uh, you know, um, we punish some people, but we don't kill them, right? That's a slippery slope. If you're going to do this today, then why don't you kill him tomorrow? Well, you know, because there are measures and, and, and different circumstances require different reactions. The event, the, the hack, uh, or whatever you want to call it, I actually, you know, I don't actually, I call it the hack only because everybody else calls it the hack. But um, the attacker, uh, it happened very, very early on in Ethereum's lifetime. And the DAO was the first sort of really visible event in uh, Ethereum's history. So there were, yeah, there were some smart contracts that got some attention, but this is a really legitimate attempt. And it was very visible. And it was done by a team that, uh, that overlooked something. And to have to lose so much of that money would really set back the community in its own, in its infancy. So, um, so I think undoing this is, was exactly the right thing to do. I look at things from a utilitarian perspective, and the only person harmed was the attacker. So this is not a bailout. It's not like other people's tax money you know, got usurped and put into rescuing the bankers. That's not the comparison at all. And I really reject that bailout terminology that the anti-forkers use. What's going on here is there was an, there was an attacker, and... Uh, we had one reality where we would have these ongoing core wars that would have completely demoralized the community for a long time to come. We had the other reality where you undo the hack and then you say, okay, we're going to just resume from here. And um, how do we know that this is not going to happen for your blackjack game? We just know that, right? How do I know that Obama, you know, not that Obama is in command of the Federal Reserve, uh, but you know, how do I know that um, uh, the uh, you know the the European bankers will not print euros up the wazoo tomorrow? I don't know that. Nobody knows that. How do I know that the dollar will not be debased? Nobody knows these things. We just have a sort of a common understanding that you know we know what we want to have happen, and uh, and that's why those things happen. <laughs> so so this was a common understanding in the community that the hack was ethically, morally not right. And it was damaging enough to, uh, to the entire operation. And undoing it had essentially no downside to anybody except the attacker that we ended up undoing it. And this is a rite of passage. This is one of the first times that Ethereum met with a difficult ethical dilemma and ended up doing something that says, OK, we're going to resolve this this way because this is what's best for us. Um, and it's going to, this is what's going to optimize our future. And I agree with that. I think this was... Fantastic. I think three months down the line, nobody will remember the DAO hack. Um, everybody will think of Ethereum as, yeah, that's where you deploy your serverless applications. Now, when you said that the only person who loses was the attacker, but earlier you mentioned that the attacker drained into drained the funds into someone else's split. Right. 
So who was that? Who was that second party? I actually don't know their identity, but the second party came forward and gave their keys to the team, the White Hat team. They they call themselves the Robin Hood team, which I think is a bad word. But anyway, they, the White Hats. So there would have been a protracted battle between the attacker and the White Hats. That, that's such bizarre behavior. Why did the attacker drain all that money into... It's almost like a Patsy's split, and they were then going to attack that person later on or something like that. I mean, I, it's, it's really hard to wrap my head around what this individual's motivations were. So that's a good question. So this, this could be somebody who's responsible, who noticed that the DAO had this vulnerability and just wanted to point out to the world that, hey, this thing is really vulnerable. Let me do something big enough, bad enough that it gets stopped. That could be. Um, it could be somebody who had, um, you know, who sort of felt uh, like somebody else knew of the attack and decided, I'm going to pick the earliest moment in time when I can drain funds and I could start my own split, but it would take time. Why don't I use somebody else's existing split? And that's what I think could have happened. Uh, it could be any other things. Um, so, uh, so that poor person whose split got selected, of course, he's in a terrible situation. Because, you know, suddenly there's all this money, he's under scrutiny, people think he is the DAO hacker, which I thought for a while. Uh, but he came forward, I'm told, and I don't know his identity, he came forward, he's vetted to not be the attacker or the hacker, have nothing to do with it. And, um, and it would have been a long protracted thing where he tries to split from the hacker, and if the hacker wanted to continue this game, he could always overpower the curator. Um, and, and just stalk him to the end of the blockchain. The end of the blockchain is going to be hopefully never. So, <laughs> so this would have been a, a completely terrible ongoing mess. It would have been a train wreck. Oh, man. Anyway, that's enough DAO. That's enough DAO, right? Because, you know, we, I mean, I don't know. Are you, are you bored of the DAO? Am I, I am. I am, actually. So we just, I just sort of wrapped it up in my mind maybe two hours ago. Uh, because we're running a, an Ethereum um, uh, boot camp right now at Cornell. And uh, Vitalik is here. Alex van der Sand is here. Uh, there are maybe two other people from the Ethereum Foundation here. Vlad Zamfir is, is planning to come in either tonight or tomorrow. And uh, I just bought a bunch of um, champagne. And uh, we bought uh, a bunch of plastic forks. And so we just had, we served everybody champagne, we toasted to, a, of a, to a, a successful hard fork, and everybody got a fork in their champagne glass. And I think in my mind, the saga is over. It's clean, just as we said it was going to be. It's crisp. It's a nice end to a long uh, journey that I think taught us a lot. I think we were not going to be making these kinds of mistakes going forward with smart contracts as a community. Moving into a way more general sense of this, what do you want to see come from the smart contract and decentralization space, if we're going to generalize? Okay, so taking a step back, right? So if I sort of look at the, the broad space and think about what's going on and so forth, we are standing at the foot of a giant opportunity or whatever it is. Like there's so much cool stuff that we are looking at um, uh, right now. So what is that cool stuff? We have a new model for computation, right? The Ethereum style of distributed virtual machines is fantastic. It's, it's incredibly powerful. These um, trustless serverless applications, they're really, really, really fascinating. So there will be killer apps 
And um, the DAO wasn't it. You could tell the DAO wasn't it just, you know, by, by, you know, I looked at it and we could identify so many problems. It's going to be hard to make crowdfunded investment vehicles that actually really work. This is, there are impossibility results in that space. Uh, there are all sorts of challenges. If the voters and the beneficiaries are, are the same pool, it gets really difficult to, to make any guarantee at all. So I don't think the, where the value is, is, is that it's not the DAO. Um, what I think we're looking at right now is we, we need to understand the science of writing robust, secure, smart contracts. That's where the action is going to be in the short term. In the medium to long term, we should be looking at what the killer applications will be. What are those things that we cannot do right now with existing infrastructure, with centralized services, that we can do with decentralized versions of the same thing? So, sure, there are some simple, easy uh, answers to this. Gambling kind of applications or game kind of applications are great because you can see the code. You have a level of transparency that you certainly don't have in Vegas, right? You can go to a game machine in Vegas. Why do you think that thing pays out the way it's supposed to pay out? I don't know, right? There's a gambling authority that supposedly checks them and so forth. Those things have been hacked every which way uh, since time immemorial. That, um, that I have no faith at all. I just play it and I know I'm going to lose. It's just, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Not so with Ethereum. And so the, one of the, some of the very first things we have seen with Ethereum have been games, right? Games and gambling kind of applications. Those are fine, but they're not the most societally useful applications. There are m- many other cooler things out there. We've also seen sort of uh, the, the Ponzi's. Peter Vesenes was saying that, you know, there's this notion of every time you learn a new language, you write a hello world application. For Ethereum, he calls it the hello Ponzi application. <laughs> People's first, first app is typically some kind of a Ponzi. And, um, you know, provable Ponzi's have their draw and some people get drawn to them. But again, not societally useful, not good at all. And so, but I think those are behind us. They were, they were pre-DAO. And DAO was the first of, of like serious applications built on Ethereum. And in the medium term, I see a lot of cool applications. Some will be naive attempts and some will be real hits. And uh, I don't know what they are. I have, you know, different areas I can name if you want me to that where I think Ethereum is going to be a great win. You, you want me to sort of... Sure, think, definitely. Yeah. Sure. So like insurance, right? This whole insurance industry is one big mess. And why do we think it works? I don't really know, right? And on occasion, it doesn't work. The government has to step in, bail all of them out. They're supposed to be cross-linked and da 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 da. There are all these like safety tests that you're supposed to run on them. I, I lived through 2008, right? So <laughs> I know how this industry works. But it's, it's incredibly, incredibly easy to build actually trustworthy insurance applications with Ethereum. So there um, I, I see a, a great benefit. And this, this is a, a case where you know the insurance is backed by real assets and you know the payout conditions. You don't have to go through a complicated claims process as long as the facts of the case can be checked online. So that I see as a, as a pretty interesting growth area. I also see prediction markets as an interesting area. I see um, exchanges as an exciting area. Uh, there are um, a bunch of other things that are really, really, really interesting in terms of services that are somehow connected to the blockchain, but don't necessarily execute within the EVM. That is, their interfaces are perhaps on the blockchain, but their implementation is elsewhere. And so, um, and there will be many others. Uh, you know, it's like every time I talk to somebody, they come up with some cool ideas. 
about uh, you know new applications. You know, on occasion as a technologist, so how do I spend my time? You know, if I look back on my life, I was using the internet in 1987 or so, and uh, and it was cool. And you could tell that well, this is pretty cool, right? I can do things that that are really hard to explain to other people, right? Like it's like you know, I remember. Um, Uh, you know, trying to explain this stuff to my parents. And it was just like, you know, yeah, the machines are connected. You send these da-da-da, and their eyes glaze over. And then suddenly, the mainstream just catches on with some simple application. And whether it's email or it's web, it's typically something really basic, really simple, and just goes on like wildfire. In this case, we're looking at a, a similarly awesome application of trustless execution. And it's killer app isn't here yet, but you can tell, like you get that feeling where like, this is really cool. This is different. It's hard to explain. Undoubtedly, it takes half an hour to explain how a blockchain works, especially, you know, the Ethereum kind of with orphans and uncles and so forth. So, um, but regardless, you're sitting on this and you think this is really cool. There's so much more to come. And so I'm super excited that, um, you know, that some bright person is going to come up with yet, yet a you know, new application area that we haven't thought of. And it's going, to, it's going to be something that catches on with mainstream. Are you working on any project in the space yourself? Yes, yes. I just wrote a very funny game yesterday. I'll, uh, <laughs> um, I'll release it, but I don't want to do it under my name. Uh, it's just a stupid game. So I'm really proud of this one. <laughs> I was just working on the UI with Alex Van de Sand, and uh, he's fantastic. Anyhow, uh, yes. So, so yeah, now I'm doing a bunch of things in this space. Uh, much more important, what, what serious stuff that I'm doing, not the, not the silly games that I'm working on. Let's see. We are working on consensus protocols, fast consensus protocols. These are useful for all sorts of things other than um, money transfers, right? There are many, many, many cases when you build services of any kind where you want the distributed components to agree. Uh, you know, where's your website? Well, it's typically distributed across so many machines, but which ones have the most current copy? Or here's a database. What's the value of some object in the database? Uh, these are sort of low level. These are the kinds of things I typically work with, and they're kind of geeky and kind of boring to your audience maybe. But these are fundamental. So when you go to like Amazon.com, there are thousands of machines that are invoked in response to every page load. So behind every page load, there are a bunch of lookups happening. Who's the user? What do they want? What did they do in the past? What, what are the related items we should show them, et cetera? So those, being able to do those kinds of things is going to be really exciting. So building high-performance databases that are decentralized is going to be pretty crucial. So I'm working on that, that particular problem. I'm working on a, uh, an open bazaar, like de- um, decentralized marketplace that I'm really excited about. So, so there is that work going on. Uh, we are also looking at the network level for... Um, decentralized cryptocurrencies, right? So Ethereum, Bitcoin, and so forth. Um, what should the network messages, how should they be transmitted? Uh, what's the fastest, best way of getting the transactions from the, the people who want to inject them into the network to the miners who want to mine them into blocks? So, um, so these are the kinds of infrastructure things I am directly working on. I'm not a, a much of an applications person. On occasion, I write a silly game or whatever. But the main thing I actually worry about are, are the typical things that are things that typical users don't get to see, things that happen behind the covers. One thing I wanted to ask you about, because you, before you expressed uh, concern about what was taking place in your home country, Turkey, and 
I figure it's I'm going to release this almost uh, you know almost immediately in, in the next couple of days anyway. And I was just reading that there was a massive purge of educators in Turkey, and uh, and I figure you're probably very in touch with with what's going on over there, and now might be a, a great opportunity to get a uh, an educated view. <laughs> Where do you want to start? <laughs> and also, you have to be aware that I cannot say too many things on this topic. This is a sensitive topic where talking my mouth off, as I typically do, might get me in trouble. So where do you want to start? It's, it's really heart-wrenching. It's absolutely heart-wrenching, the whole thing. It's ghastly to watch because Turkey is this, uh, this stalwart country that kind of we associate as being the bridge between the West and the yep. Middle East. And to see, uh, to see it descend into, into chaos like this is, is quite disturbing. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, and uh, and you know I don't want to I don't want to push into uh, a, a subject that's uh, uncomfortable for you. But what is the uh, what is the relationship between the education institutions and the powers that be in Turkey? And why has why have why have deans of of universities been asked to step down? <laughs> that's a great question. So um, I'm a professor right um, right now, right? The one thing you realize is that deans don't have power. Everybody knows this, right? As, a, as an undergraduate, did you ever interact with a dean? No, you never see these people. As a professor, the dean works for me, essentially. I, I'd have demands and requests of my dean. It's not the, the other way around. The dean doesn't say you should teach this and that, right? That doesn't happen. If he said that, I would be like, no, Greg, I don't want to do that. <laughs> this, is, this is the whole contract here is, you know, we don't get paid as well, perhaps, as, um, as, uh, as our colleagues in industry, but we have full autonomy as professors. So it's really funny to me that, um, that uh, the government ended up getting rid of deans. That was the, one of the first things they did. I think it speaks to how uneducated they are, that they think that the deans have power at universities. <laughs> so. What you're really seeing here is really culture wars. That there is, and, and you see this in the U.S. as well. You see it in quite a few countries. And the culture culture war is really between, you know, I don't want to talk too grandly, but this is how I think of it. And other your viewers might think I'm naive or whatever, but this is what I think: that um, that there is a, there is the sort of the progressive crowd who wants to to have a better world where they are willing to entertain any thought. Um, as long as it has merit or entertain whether or not a thought has merit. Uh, they believe in freedom. They believe in free expression. They believe in making the world a better place. And the other side of this coin are a set of people who want to oppress others. They want other people to have lives as, as, uh, as boring as theirs, in fact, um, and as narrow as theirs. They, they want you to have all the same thoughts as them and no other. And that's really, that's what I see playing out in multiple countries. In Turkey, this came to a head. It just sort of bubbled up. And uh, this coup, manufactured or not, was an opportunity for the government to come out and, and, and suddenly start enforcing martial law that was declared yesterday. The government also called its supporters out onto the streets. So for a couple of days, the streets were full of people screaming, Allahu Akbar. And, um, and really, there were no policemen. So for a bunch of days, there was no rule of law, and it wasn't really clear what was going to happen. Um, and I heard the chants when I was speaking to my sister on the phone. So it's, um, it's, really, uh, it's really disconcerting. 
The Turkey I grew up in was a secular country. It was a progressive country. It wanted to be part of the West. And um, the West has never really embraced us uh, for reasons I never understood. And uh, the West has always been suspicious of, of leftist progressive movements in other countries, and uh, in, in, in particular in Turkey. And the leftist movement in Turkey was completely devastated. The progressive movement was completely devastated on purpose. And that left us with an enormous organization on the right. And, uh, and now we see that playing itself out. We see these people have, have extensive preparation and they took an opportunity. And, um, uh, you know, and when I say these people, you can substitute the people who are behind the coup or you can substitute other people that I won't name. But, um, but, uh, but some people obviously were really prepared to, to turn the country from what it used to be into, uh, into a much, much, much more dangerous, much very different place. That's all I can say. Yeah, yeah. I'm really sorry that, uh, that you're, uh, you're experiencing this um, in a remote fashion. It's, it, must be, uh, it must be really, really difficult. Yeah, I just watched tanks on the Bosphorus Bridge open up. I, uh, I knew that this was happening. The tanks were blocking the bridge. And um, I think by the time this, um, our podcast goes on the wire, I think your viewers will have seen this. There is some high-definition footage of Turkish tanks actually, so, you know, they're flanked by a bunch of, uh, bunch of military people with uh, guns in their hands, machine guns. Not only do they use the machine guns to fire on people, they're actually opening up with the main gun of the tank. So I, I'm laughing out of like some sort of nervousness. It's insane. I never thought I would see, I would witness such a thing. It did happen. Um, it's, it's devastating on boats. In the, whichever, whatever your affiliations or thoughts might be, just watching that happen as brother against brother, um, anybody could have been drafted into that army. Anybody could have been commanded to go behind the, the, that tank gun and press the button. Um, and anybody uh, could have been, you know, carrying a flag to say, no, don't do this on the other side. And uh, anyway, we can go on and on. Come on, let's wrap up on a happier note. I was so happy all day. I've been, I've been working on Ethereum and smart contracts. There is, there is, absolutely. So what's, uh, so what's the atmosphere in, uh, in Cornell right now with, uh, you know, you've got the A team of, of cryptocurrency there and you've got a hackathon going on. How do you find it? What's the atmosphere like? So we've never done this before. So um, I'm on the organizing side of things. So, so how do I feel? Super excited and a little, uh, little pressed for time because, you know, you're always, whenever you run an event, you're, it's always emergency mode. It's like, oh, we need coffee for everyone. We need this and that. We need to plan the next activity and so forth. But it's been amazing. It's been absolutely amazing to be able to pick, you know, the brains of the people who are working on this firsthand. And, uh, and I think the counter, the, the sort of the, the opposite is true for the people who are attending, that they get to talk to the researchers at the forefront of sort of activities that are not the day-to-day, but they're like maybe a couple years out. So um, it's been an amazing sort of coming, of, um, you know, coming together of, of different people. Uh, we had a keynote yesterday by Vitalik in the morning and, uh, uh, and another talk in the afternoon. So we, we have some of these. Um, every day we have a little outing where we go out and walk and, um, and see something around. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to having uh, some, uh, some, uh, you know, some drinks, uh, some sangria on, the, on a sunny, sunny afternoon in, the, in nice Ithaca uh, weather. Um, so, you know, it's, this is the kind of, and 
there's stories and the anecdotes are hilarious. Um, the cryptocurrency space, as you know, is incredibly amusing. There's no shortage of gossip. There's no shortage of funny history, things that happened, scams that people pulled, scams that people tried to pull but exploded <laughs> on them, strange intrigue, uh, who said what to whom. So a lot of that has been fantastic. But, um, but in general, it's supremely positive and, and supremely forward-looking and, and um, I don't know, um, we typically talk about sort of what new things we could build and what cool things one could do. Are there any rising stars kicking around over there? I always wonder who's going to turn up. Who's, you know, I mean, people like, people like Jaden. I actually interviewed Jaden uh, right at the start of the year uh, when he was participating in the Ether Camp Hackathon. And to see him turn up at Consensus was amazing. I wonder, are there any uh, like really rising talents that you're, uh, you're running into over there? Absolutely. So let's see. So there are some people that uh, others would know from uh, Bitcoin circles. So Andrew Miller is absolutely fantastic. Itai Ayal, absolutely fantastic. Um, both of them I've worked with uh, quite a bit and they're just, just absolutely awesome people. Itai is leading a project to build vaults uh, for Ethereum wallets. So that allows um, somebody whose private keys have been compromised to retrieve their cash and to do so in a way that doesn't impact um, uh, immutability of regular transactions. It's only when your money is stolen from your wallet that you can actually retrieve it using the techniques that Itai's uh, pioneered. So that's exciting. Um, Itai is always full of very, very, very uh, practical, uh, creative, cool new features. Um, Andrew Miller, as I mentioned, is, um, has cool crypto ideas. And rising stars, yeah. So we have Phil Dion, who played an enormous role in, um, in uh, tracking the, the bug that uh, affected the DAO. Uh, Phil is going to be a first-year grad student at Cornell. He hasn't even started yet. He's great. I really wanted to have Jaden and River. They've been great, but uh, they're not here at the boot camp. Uh, I suspect that they are going to be, so if you ask me, like the rising stars of the entire space, their names have to be mentioned, both Jaden and, um, and River. In addition, we have a whole lot of other students here. Some visitors from, uh, or visiting students from uh, Shanghai Jatong also are participating. Uh, there are some industry people who are here, who are sort of finding out more about the Ethereum technology, how to use it, how to hook into it, and so forth. So, uh, so it's an exciting space. Is, are there any links that you'd like to share? Uh, or or is, uh, are, are you on Twitter? I am. So my Twitter handle is Elite Hacksaw. <laughs> so um, I'm going to have to spell it E-L-3-3-T-H-4-X-O-R. And if anybody's interested in following a, sort of an academic view on cryptocurrencies, what's coming down the pipe in not like a couple months, but in a couple of years. Uh, so feel free to hook in. And I tweet about those kinds of things, uh, cryptocurrency things, Bitcoin and, um, and Ethereum related stuff, as well as new currency ideas or new core ideas that anybody could take and run with. The other link that is relevant is the link to IC3 which is the Initiative for Cryptocurrencies and Smart Contracts. The website for IC3 is initc3.org. And Hacking Distributed, too. Oh, and Hacking Distributed, that's my blog, yes. If, if people want to see a, an opinionated guy get attacked by people from every angle, <laughs> so come and watch me take the heat from uh, Bitcoiners of all kinds, 
um, you know, I don't know, I end up getting a lot of people upset because I typically have this unrelenting view that there is an objective reality out there. Um, and, and there's only one way of questioning it or going about discovering it, which is science. That sometimes interferes with people's uh, market positions, <laughs> and then they really dislike me. So I've taken a lot of heat for discovering flaws in Satoshi's, um, Satoshi's uh, uh, consensus protocol. Uh, apparently, I didn't get the memo that you never say anything bad about Satoshi. But the fact is, there was a flaw in it, and we discovered it, and uh, then that caused a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, fun activities. And the funny thing is, as, as is always the case with science, it always, science always wins. When the block size debate got heated up, you know, everybody is citing selfish mining as the reason for, uh, you know, why we have to do this or the other, both sides. You know, it's because of selfish mining, we have to go to small blocks. No, we got to go to big blocks and so forth. And the, the, the same people were denying it existed just a year and a half ago or two years ago. So uh, it's been kind of a fun ride. Um, and uh, in general, we're very... so. Um, the security field has two sorts of approaches to it, what we call constructive versus um, what I, I typically call deconstructive. So deconstructive people find bugs in things. Um, and at Cornell, most of us are constructive security people. So we try to build systems with strong properties. We don't just find bugs. We actually try to fix them or build systems that have strong reasons for why they should work properly. And um, that has, I don't know, that, that's sort of our take. So if you go to Hacking Distributed, you'll find out about um, you know, robust system, you know, techniques for robust system construction. Awesome. Hey, thanks a whole bunch, Emin. This has been absolutely a top interview. Thank you so much, Arthur. Take care for now. Bye. This has been the Ether Review. Visit etherreview.info for more episodes, email contact at etherreview.info or follow us on Twitter at etherreview. Ether